And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic On from the British GP, we now look forward to Austria and the Red Bull Ring but first let's talk about the winners of the last two Grand Prix Ducati and who is going to be riding alongside the Italian Peco Bagnaia in 2023 Toby Moody here with Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunshi. We will also answer some of your questions too from all around the world. So then, Banyaya and Jack Miller are part of the factory Ducati MotoGP team right now, both in their second year with the squad. Banyaya has taken four victories so far this year. Last year, there were six wins between them. But into next year, Jack Miller is going to the factory KTM MotoGP squad. So therefore, who will replace him in the Bologna squad alongside Banyaya? It's not been announced. Ducati have a wealth of talent coming through the, the factory, as you want to call it. Um, we're going to talk about who we might want to see in there, who we think is going to be in there. We don't know who is going to be in there, and we're looking forward to the announcement. Who's going to go first? Simon is. Well, we kind of do know who's going to be in there, Toby. We, we know that it's going to be an Bastianini or it's going to be Jorge Martin. Um, Ducati have, have kind of said as much over the last few months that it's, it's now sort of narrowed down into a bit of a showdown between the two of them once... Other riders who were potentially on the market signed for other teams. Once, sort of, Johan Zarco did his usual Zarco-esque uh, mid-season slump after a really strong start to the year to rule himself out of factory contention. Uh, we were left with, with two candidates. And honestly, I think Silverstone was a complete and utter headache for Ducati's management when it comes to being any closer to making a decision. Because... What we, we, we've seen a, a two part race for that seat so far this year. Uh, we saw Enea Bastianini starting the championship really, really strongly, uh, like we expected he would on the old 2021 bike because he had no development work to do. Um, I think was it Indonesia Val that Peko Bagnaya complained that all that he'd done, all that Bastianini had done so far was change tires and fuel. I don't remember. Well, definitely all of the works Ducati riders, including Martin, which is yeah. very pertinent, have been looking at Bastianini somewhat with some envy as to how easy his life has been in, in that regard for the start of the season. Yeah. So we, we, we kind of expected that. You in particular wrote quite a bit over the winter about how much you expected it, and you've been proven right by that. Um, so from, from there, th that went to plan. But we know that Jorge Martin started the season with injuries. 
he started the season with the the lingering effects of last year's big Portimao crash, something that we didn't even really know about until he announced he was going for surgery to release some trapped nerves. And on that Ducati, which is, you know, has proven to be a difficult beast to get into shape for 2022. But over the sort of the, the second half of the first part of the season leading up into the summer break, he started to improve. He started to look stronger. He had that surgery and it went well and everything was going well. And then at Silverstone, we saw Bastianini deliver a performance that realistically he shouldn't have been able to perform. He shouldn't have been able to do given the fact that in the very early stages of the race, Jorge Martin managed to take his wing off. It is a, it is a deeply, deeply obnoxious situation for Ducati to be in. You know, we say embarrassment of riches and we say that it's a nice headache to have, but honestly, I don't think so. <laughs> I think this sucks. If I'm Ducati, I hate this because they're, they're too close in terms of performance and yet they're performing in very different ways. So I, I've dug up some stats in advance to that and looking at... So the average start this season, Jorge Martin, 6.4, Enea Bastianini, 10.2. Average finish, Jorge Martin, 8.1, Enea Bastianini, 6.3. Uh, positions gained and positions lost compared to starting position, uh, including the DNFs where they retired and the place where they retired. I decided to also include that just to emphasize it sort of. Uh, Jorge Martin has lost 25 places compared to where he's been qualifying, and Enea Bastianini has gained 42. They're they're two mirror opposite riders, and yet they're both will be rightly believing that they have a really good case for the factory ride. It would be wonderful if one of them was spanking the other, and Ducati would could go to whoever's losing, could go to Martin or Bastinini and go, well, look, we're we're treating you nicely. Here's a Pramac ride. The other guy won this fair and square. You know it. You can see it. That's just not happening. It's not happening, and I think. Whoever doesn't win the battle for the work seat, even if they've been promised equipment parity, salary parity, whatever, whoever doesn't win the factory red is going to be miffed. Mm. It's, it's, it's just an unpleasant position to be in. It is. No, good words, good words. And, you know, Bastianini, he's fourth in the championship on 118 points. Jorge Martin is 11th in the championship on 81 points. Equal points to... 10th position but he's lost the ten equal 10th on a tie break there are things that we'll never know like we will put you in the big team if you are above x position in the championship at the halfway point of the championship which of course was post Aston pre-silverstone maybe it was september the first maybe it's september the 15th all these little trigger points that people put into contracts we'll probably never know until we know the rider Here's, here's another fun and stupid one. Uh, Ine has won three races to Jorge zero this season. Yep. Jorge has led more laps. How? He's How led does more any laps. of this work? Yeah, he's led more laps. <laughs> I think like three or something. It just makes... And it's because I, I, I think I've proffered this very sim- big simplification of it somewhere before, but I really... The more I look at it, the more I see it. Ducati had Andrea Dovizioso and Jorge Lorenzo once in their lineup, and they were two very opposite riders in terms of when they were at their best. Uh, Enea is Dovi and Jorge Martin is Jorge Lorenzo. Uh, Lorenzo qualified well and then very often faded, while Dovi was just not a very good qualifier at all, but could always be counted on to make up positions in the race and be wily and be smart. And obviously, it's a big simplification, but that's sort of the, the philosophical 
question at the heart of it. Who do you want? Which of these two assets are more valuable to you? Jorge Martin is going to score like 15 poles in a season one of these years. He's exceptional at qualifying. But Enea Bastianini is going to qualify 13th and will still have a chance at winning the race. Which of these do you want? And I know points are paid on Sunday, but it's, it's, it's not that simple. Because qualifying also does matter, clearly. Where you start matters a lot in modern MotoGP. And the, 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 I hadn't made the Lorenzo Dovi comparison before, Val, but that's super, super interesting because it explains the entire problem that I think Ducati are in right now. Because on paper, with those stats you've just read out, Bastianini is the obvious person for the ride. He's doing a better job, etc., etc., etc. But Ducati know that if they'd extended Jorge Lorenzo's contract instead of sacking him, he would probably have been the one that would have won the World Championship in 2020 or 2021, not Dovi. And I think that there is, everyone knows that Jorge Martin has tons and tons and tons of raw talent. And it's all about being able to harness it. And no one wants to risk losing all that talent to another factory or to risk pissing off the talent or whatever. Um, I, I don't know if it's fair necessarily in Enea Bastianini that he's always been a bit of an underrated rider the whole way through his career. And even now with, with three races, three race wins under his belt this year, is still a bit underrated compared to Jorge Martin and that sort of talent stakes rather than the result stakes. But I think Ducati are really, really weary of taking a risk on it. Yeah, but Lorenzo, ironically, he did all his winning once they had fallen out with him and once they'd actually given him the parts that enabled him to win on the bike at that Mugello that year. So I don't think that's the same problem nowadays, of course. It's not a technical problem. It's they don't know where to look problem. But isn't that MotoGP though, guys? Val, Simon, isn't that MotoGP? Everybody's trying to get into MotoGP at, at, at early 20s, 21, 22, 23, whereas in the older days, you were getting into MotoGP at 25, 26, 27. Maybe, that, maybe that's what's another problem contributing to this problem for Ducati, Simon. It, you know, the, the more we talk about it, the more I think that the the obvious solution to this is that Ducati should probably just give the seat to Joan Zarco, put both of this pair into Pramac and full factory bikes and said, look, we can't decide, so we're making you equal. Because what other solution is there at this point, given how different, but how ultimately as fast as each other they are? But if they go onto the same bikes and ex say they get exactly the same specification, Pramac to factory Ducati, there are four bikes exactly the same at every Grand Prix. They get paid the big buck money. The only thing that's different is that the, it's a bit of pride because they're not a works factory Ducati rider in red leathers. There's two problems there. One is that it's not a bit of pride. It's a racer's ego, which is the biggest yeah, and most massive. fragile thing in the paddock. And the second, go, the second is that, you know, I've said this almost as long as we've been doing the podcast, that a satellite bike can't win a championship because of the factory support that comes with it. So what you'd want is not just a commitment to a bike and a technical package. You'd want a commitment to equal footing in the back office, I yeah. uh, you'd want them to ha make sure that there's like another six engineers coming on board to make sure that there's not suddenly 15 people crunching the data of three people, not two people. It, it's a huge investment. You would want mm. them to make a huge investment on your behalf to make the point. S Simon Zarco proposal 
completely non-feasible, I think, but it's like sort of a MotoGP version of the Judgment of Solomon. <laughs> like, whoever whoever minds the least of just, you know, as long as the other one doesn't have it. But you you listen to the way both guys have been talking about the prospect of riding for the factory team and you don't you don't really get the feeling from either but i think especially from jorge martin you do not get the feeling that he'll feel particularly good at ending up at pramac i think martin knows that bastianini really showed him up quite badly at silverstone but martin also believes that silverstone should not be the end all be all that ducati should be basing the decision on the whole picture of not just uh not just 2022, in which they've had very different bikes, but 2021, in which they've also had very different bikes, but in which Martin, I think, was pretty comprehensively better than Enea Bastianini. But again, not accounting for the for the machinery difference. And Martin, I think, from what he's been saying during the season, the sort of the feeling that those Bastianini wins would have been his if they kept him on the 21 instead of 2022. I think you could sort of hear an undercurrent to that. So if those wins are the reason why he doesn't get to the works Ducati seat, which he for long has been the heir apparent to, then it's going to sting and I don't know how well he'll take it. And on the other hand, Enea has said some reasonably forceful things in the media when I'm just thinking of the uh, of the time he said that Pekka Banyai wants to keep Jack Miller because Jack's easier to beat, which is it's it's not something that you say easily. So clearly, there's also a strength of feeling there in wanting that seat. It's tough. It's really tough. Honestly, maybe for morale, it would be better to just put Zarco in there for a year and then have him go head to head at Pramac and say whoever scores more, the the red bike's yours. But it's it's too convoluted. I'm I'm pretty sure that in the ideal world, Pecco would still rather have Jack Miller alongside him next year. Absolutely. Um, the, there are shades of. Uh, do you remember the situation with KTM, whenever they moved Oliveira yes, to I was the, say, uh, yeah, yeah. the to Tech Three? Yeah. That that's exactly what this reminds me of. They put they they promoted him from Moto Three into the or from Moto Two into the Moto GP satellite team yeah. with Tech Three. They offered him a chance to then upgrade to the factory when Zarco the following yeah. year when Zarco left. He said no because he didn't want to leave. And then he got really, really upset with KTM whenever his great career rival Brad yeah. Binder got the chance to go to the factory state instead. Uh, and that highlights Racer Eagle. Yeah. Th- that, that shows how fragile the, uh, the the characters that we're dealing with here are. In, in theory, those were rides of the same quality to the point where Oliveira didn't take up the option to graduate to the works team because he felt comfortable in his Tech 3 environment and felt that the machine... And he was winning on it. Yeah. But seeing Brad Binder leapfrog him on the ladder, which is effectively what happened, because clearly Miguel expected that Mika Calio would get the the ride full-time or something like that. And instead, he saw Brad Binder leapfrog him up the, the junior ladder. And he probably also somewhere subconsciously and I think correctly realized that once Brad Binder is in that team, he's in that team for a long time. And that's one seat that you're not going to dislodge him out of. So you have to dislodge Paul, who at that point was really, really good at KTM. So honestly, KTM was very lucky that Paul left for Honda because otherwise resolving the Paul, Binder, Miguel situation in terms of works rides would have been really painful and difficult. And Paul sort of gave it an exit strategy. 
but it, it, it just shows yeah how how much they do value status and they they do not want their direct rivals their program rivals taking what they feel is rightfully theirs and has been promised to them and again for jorge martin especially it will be so hard to swallow if having basically had that seat in his grasp for i think we've we've expected him in the in the works ride since midway through last year i think no, I, and if now it slips away and goes to an air it's tough I, I think we've expected him in the works right since he announced he was going to Ducati and not KTM and MotoGP yeah. because he made Fair it quite enough. clear yeah. that that was the, the career trajectory and, and just to go back to the KTM thing it is worth noting now that two years on um, Brad Binder is on an ultra long term MotoGP deal with them and Miguel Oliveira were waiting on him to announce a year-old satellite Aprilia because he told KTM to go stuff themselves whenever they offered him a chance to go back to the satellite squad. Like, I, I can't help but feel that that's all yeah. related. His, um, the difficulty in negotiations between him and KTM are at least partly due to that original snub. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think you're being polite, Simon. Um, yeah, uh, it, it won't have helped him. Coming back to Ducati, let's just also look at what's happened this year, apart from the four Grand Prix that Banyaya has taken from the top step. Ducati have been on every single podium this year, whether or not it's a red bike or a dusty blue and red bike. Um, they've always been there. Um, so they are in a, a strong position depth of field if you want to call it that and they've got all millions of bikes on the grid um, if Banyaya wins the championship what have we got eight races to go so in four Grand Prix we'll be at Japan does that have a factor on who they choose I know that's just a, a curveball and a wild card but does it mean that they put more stock into Banyaya next year because he might be the world champion or they line him up and they don't need anybody too strong in factory Ducati? Well, they can't bring <laughs> they can't bring Miller back, no, no, no. so I don't know. Yeah, I see what you mean, but I, I don't think you wouldn't you wouldn't pick the weaker guy necessarily out of Martina and Bastianini because you have no idea who the weaker guy is. And that's the whole problem. Like you, you, you don't know who the stronger guy is, Val. Yeah, yeah, and hence, like obviously, you could just give it to Zarco or Luca Marini <laughs> in that case. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think Ducati works like that. Am, um, I, am I thinking a bit F one here, where you have a strong one and then a a backup, a little a bit? Backup. I think, yeah. yeah. But I also, I'm also informed by the fact that I don't really think Bagnaia's going to win the title this year. Mm. So I think, but I, I see what you mean. What? Yeah. Some. Yeah. You see that that is the. The whole thing in a nutshell, Val. I think the reason we're having this entire conversation is Ducati aren't sure Peko Bagnaia is ever going to win a championship because he hasn't yet delivered a championship win in performance over the course of a season. He's still making those dumb mistakes. He's still blipping in form. And I think that they're a little bit concerned that maybe he won't ever do it. Maybe he'll be another Dovi who's super strong but can't put it all together and that's why there's so much urgency to to get one of these two onto a bike where they're fully capable of doing it. But to go back to your original point, Toby, about how strong Ducati are, I think that's also 
something that's potentially hindering them and winning a championship. Because there's too many of them. There's too many of them. Their focus is so split. Um, you know, we've already got this bizarre situation where two of the factory bikes are different from the other three factory bikes out of the five factory bikes on the grid because Peko wanted to go one way and there wasn't enough time for everyone else to go another way, etc., etc., etc. And that is going to be a reason why, another reason beyond ego, why these two guys that we're talking about want to be on a factory bike because Ducati have proved to them that all things aren't equal. That yeah. factory is different from satellite, even if they say it's not different, because Peko Bagnaia is not in the same bike as Jorge Martin right now. Yeah, it's a really good point. I I, I forgot about that di- diversion at the start of the season, but yeah, whenever whenever Peko liked one engine and and there wasn't time to build five of them, and obviously they have to be homologated pair teams, so mm. Miller got them all along with Bagnaia. Like yeah. That that that's the per, that's you know I know we we've said a lot about ego but that is also a factor. It's a huge factor. It's massive. Uh, coming back to back up Simon's point about you know can Banyaya is Banyaya the man to win only this potentially the second Ducati MotoGP World Championship in twenty years. Um, when he wins, it's great. Otherwise, he falls off. You have to go back to Portugal, which was round five for him to get an eighth position. Otherwise, it's win, crash, win, crash, crash, win, win. So, is he the man? Question mark. The annoying bit there, I think, is that Bastianini and Martin also fall off a bunch, unfortunately. Uh, no, no, he's had four dot balls this year, four non-scores. Which one, Banyaya? Banyaya. Yeah, yeah, but Martin and Bastianini have also had a fair few... Uh, Bastianini's full and uh, non-scored three times. Uh, Zarco only three times non-scored. Uh, Miller twice, and then we go to Jorge Martin four non-scores. Yeah. But but one of his non-scores was because of Peko. Let's not that forget that. Swings around about yeah. But so. also at the same time in that race he was on course for an eighth or ninth, which for me in yeah. MotoGP championship terms is pretty much a non-score. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Alicia Spargaro scored in every race. Funnily enough, he's second in the championship. Yeah, it's, uh, it's regarding whether I think you know Josh also mentioned this on the on the last podcast. I think that sort of the this decision between Bastianini and. Martin and the rejection of Miller is partly a vote of no confidence towards Banyaya. And I, I do see it that way. But at the same time, also, some of it just has to be being afraid to lose a really, really good asset. Like those two guys are good enough to where they won't wait around forever. And any MotoGP team, even Honda with peak Mark Marquez would do well to figure out which one of them is the better long-term option and lock them down. So, you know, a good second rider, even if you think Banya is going to win every race next season, there's always a chance that he, you know, he falls off, he hurts himself, he misses three months. You need, you need a really good second rider. If, if Yamaha loses Fabio to an injury for a couple of months right now, its season is done. It is over. It is not coming back. It is not being resuscitated. It is instantly over. And Ducati has cultivated a position to where that's not the case. But maybe it's come at the expense of the, that ultimate single rider focus. 
But in any case, I think it's just, you know, you have to make sure you lock down the better of Bastinini and Martin. And unfortunately, that comes with risking alienating whoever of them you deem to be not better, even though they're also a really good asset. It's tough. Mark Marquez, peak Mark Marquez in 2017, said to Repsol Honda, I want Valentin Harunchi to be my teammate next year. They'd have at least considered it. Yeah, that's true. Whereas Peko Bagnaya, Peko Bagnaya said in very strong words that he wanted Jack Miller to be his teammate next year. And Giacchetti said, no, thanks. We don't think he's good enough. And that, to me, says that there's not the sole focus on one writer there. Yeah. More than anything else. That That is, you know, the fact that they did disregard that advice from him. Yeah. Because he was quite strong, Doss. I'm sure he was stronger behind closed doors. But but he's no Mark. Banyara is no Mark. Mark Mark's no. the tail wagging the dog. Banyara's not got there yet. No, no, absolutely. But but I don't think Giacchetti think he's ever going to get there. Patently. I mean, it's also, I think, mm. part, and this is just conjecture, but I think also... Gigi Delinia has never been too convinced by Jack Miller. So in that regard, it was probably it was easier to not listen to Banyaya's recommendation and to ignore it. I think it was if it was a little bit a slightly different situation, I think Banyaya might have might have gotten his his way. Because I do think Ducati believes a lot in him and really, really likes him. And I think Gigi in particular, actually. So it's early one morning. We're in the boardroom of Ducati Corsa. Claudio Domenicali is at the head of the table. Coffee's wonderful. Those little patisseries are in the middle of the table. And there's one subject on the agenda. Who are you going to choose to be that second rider in 2023? Who are we going to choose? Simon's going to go first. Well, the one thing I was going to say first before I choose anyone is that the confusing factor in all of this is that the person at the tip of the table is Claudio Domenicali. And if there's something that we've seen from the Ducati CEO in the past, it's that that doesn't necessarily mean that the logical reason or rhyme to things is the way that he's going to be done. You know, I was just thinking before you even said that just now, Toby, that if he'd kept his mouth shut for a week in, uh, what was it, May 2018, we potentially wouldn't even be in this situation because they'd be looking for a teammate for Jorge Lorenzo. As a the, world the, champion. The, the, the seven-time world champion Jorge Lorenzo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm speculating. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. You're not. You're not far I wrong. You're not far wrong. <laughs> but, but yeah. it is. I don't know. Seven time is a bit much. Yeah. Yeah, he's already a five-time. It was only. Oh, two, okay, you know okay. what I mean? Twenty. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not okay. counting. Yeah. So it it wouldn't have been painfully unreasonable. Um. So the fact that Dominicali is in the room is not something that, that moves it in a logical direction. Yeah, but it's a wild card in there. It's yeah. a maverick in there. But he ain't going to change. He's he's in charge and, and we're stuck Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Of course, of course. <laughs> and, and with that in mind, um, I, I think that that probably tips it in factor in favor of Jorge Martin because he is also the bit of the maverick, the bit of the wild card. From a pure point of view, he's better. Yeah. Than, than than Bastianini with no no offense in the world. Yeah. Enea is a great guy, but he's not got the personality, the outgoing, punchy. Yeah. So for me, Martin has it. Yeah. For me, Hori Martin is the raw talent, I suspect with a higher ceiling. But I've looked at the numbers in twenty twenty two and I think they don't lie. And I think it would be unmeritorious to not pick Enea Bastianini as the factory Ducati rider for twenty twenty three. On a one-year deal, one plus one, not two, one plus one. 
I know they're committing to two. I think that's a mistake. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's Anaya Bastianini. He's won three Grand Prix. He uh, has been in a uh, an underdog team. Never mind the the, the 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 thing he sat on, but that for me has has swung it. He's won those Grand Prix. Uh, he's fourth in the championship. He's ahead of Zarco, who was a candidate at the beginning of the year, but has drifted away for the second seat of Factory Ducati next year. Um, I think Martin is is far more marketable than Anaya Bastianini. I'm embarrassed to say that, and I hope that Anaya is not listening. Um, but I think that Martin's a he's a bit of a ro- bit of a hero. He's he's a maverick, and he strokes the cat the wrong way. He's brilliant, um, but unfortunately, it hasn't just quite come through. He'll win Grand Prix. I can't quite see him winning a world championship quite yet, and it pains me to say that. So I'm going to go for Bastianini. The the other thing I'm just thinking about things Dad demands for now. Um, I just want to go the podcast, but um, uh, you know, um, the other thing for me that tips it in favor of Martin though is that if you give the seat to Martin and put Bastianini into a solid Pramac ride, he'll probably be quite happy with that. Yeah. If you give Bastianini the seat and leave Martin where he is, he'll be one the one that's really angry. Yeah. Um. So why not? You know, m- maybe that sort of means put both of them in a one plus one, put Martin in the factory for year one, a- and make it a shootout that way. Yeah. Because then he can't. He it's it's much harder to be angry whenever you're told this is the qualification you have to meet over the course of a full season and you don't meet it. I'll go with that. No, as you well. can't blame Ducati then. Uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'll go with that. I'll go with that as well. That's that's absolutely spot on. That yeah. was honestly that was my next thought as well. Unfortunately, because I think Bastianini will be more accepting of the Pramac ride than Martin, and that's that's obviously a factor. So when I said meritoriously, it should be Bastianini, but in terms of least resistance, the, the, the case for Martin is really good. But also, also if you wanted to pick a time in MotoGP history to piss off one of your worst riders, now's a decent time. Suzuki's True. leaving. All the rides are gone somewhere. There's no real, no real alternatives. Whereas if Jorge Martin's really angry, where's he going to go? He's he's going to sign a one year deal and hope that uh, Franco Morbidelli doesn't find yeah, any form in the next eighteen months. Would he want to ride the Yamaha compared to the Ducati? He might not have a Jorge choice. Martin. Now. No, he might stay in the prime. Yeah, but but if if the choice is to go to Yamaha in a rage to tell Ducati what's what. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. On a factory salary, <laughs> yeah. that he's capable of doing that. That that 100%. is Jorge Martin, and is you know he, he, that's why we like him, right? It, but it, it, here's another shame. Um, without the behind-the-scenes documentary, um, do you know what? I've forgotten his name. Doesn't that tell you Motor something? Motor GP Unlimited. Yeah. Motor GP Unlimited. Same yeah. uh, thing. And, and and didn't um, Jorge Martin say to you, Simon, that? This season, he was going to let the cameras in on the actual negotiations with Ducati for his 2023 ride, and we'll never see yes, it. Yes, he did. Yeah, I know. And let's not forget who's negotiating for an Bastinini as well. Uh, yes, quite. Carlo Pernat, which would have just been... Spectacular. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, spectacular. Right, well, um, do you think you know when they're going to say it? I think they'll announce something at Mizano. That's my gut feeling. They'll want to do it at home 
which which gives another weekend in Austria this weekend at the track where Jorge Martin won his rookie race um, yep. last year. If he wins again, that confuses things even further. If he gets beaten by an Ea Bastianini this weekend, then the Cetas Bastianinis, or at least it probably should be in merit. Um, but <laughs> this is MotoGP. Who knows what's going to mm. happen? Yeah, what a mess! Yeah, what a what a mess! I mean, there's also what every possibility that one of them wipes the other out in turn one, and a Suzuki wins the race. Anything could happen. That that's the just yeah, that's where yeah. we are right now. Yeah, we're going around in circles. Okay, okay. So uh, Simon thinks it should go to Jorge Martin. Val and I think it should go to Bastianini. And we will play those words back in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hi lads, it's James here from Ireland. Um, hope you're all keeping well. My question today is regarding the tracks that are on the MotoGP calendar every year and the contracts that are signed from and, and, and the process that goes into that through Dorna. Um, when I was doing the, the fan survey, I noticed there was a question about what tracks that you would consider vital as a fan to the MotoGP season. And there were tracks on there like Magello, Le Mans, whatever, but there was Indianapolis, which is you know currently not on the MotoGP calendar and hasn't been for a while. And also, you know, going through the MotoGP website, there was an article about a, a contract being signed for a, a new race in Hungary to take part at a, a new track from 2023, which looks kind of unlikely as I don't think the track has been fully built yet. Um, so how does the process of signing the contracts and the track selection go every year through Dorna? You know, what's what did they take into account when holding these tracks and can they drop tracks at a year's notice? And are there long-standing contracts with tracks like Indianapolis where they can just bring them back into a season at a year's notice. Um, so yeah, that's my question. And um, are there any tracks in countries around the world that MotoGP has never raced at that uh, you would like to see on the calendar? Um, so yeah, keep up the good work in the podcast and uh, thanks very much. Thank you, James. Uh, yeah, uh, lots to answer there, I have to say. Uh, where to start? Um, uh, Hungary, they've got a little bit of form because they did a deal with Dorna to have a Grand Prix in 2009 and they never even put a spade in the ground. So uh, that was a win for Dorna. Uh, the same happened for the Circuit of Wales uh, a few years later. Never put a spade in the ground. So the way that it works on a business basis is the circuits pay Dorna 
for Dorna to bring MotoGP to their circuit. It's like the circus coming to town, isn't it? So if a a, a, a circuit pays Dorna six million dollars, six million euros, whatever it may be, they then have to make more than six million euros on the gate with the spectators coming through the gate. There are other bits that shake out from there, but that's how it works for Grand Prix to go to a circuit. Um, hi, James. Thanks for the question. Um, I, I'm going to be quite cynical here and say that the only thing that matters in a circuit selection for Dorna is whether or not that circuit can pay the hosting fee. That is the only consideration. Um, everything else is secondary to that. And there is, as a result, there is no circuit on the calendar that's actually safe. There's no race in the calendar that's actually safe. Um, I mean, we don't need any more evidence than that, do we, than the fact that Bruno was no longer in the calendar because no one could agree a system where, you know, Dorna would drop the hosting fee a little bit in return for uh, the circuit then using it to resurface. That was all mooted. And, or some of the gate. Or, or some of the gate. That was all mooted and ignored. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's... There's nothing there that's really safe as a result. There are some circuits that have slightly different contracts from the norm. Um, like, for example, I think Phillip Island joined Assen in doing slightly different contracts. The normal the normal circuit contract is five years uh, to come for five years. Both of those tracks did 10-year deals on the promise that it would then allow them to get investment to upgrade facilities, knowing that they had a race for 10 years. But those are also tracks where, uh, you know, there's a solid gate every year that doesn't really fluctuate too much. And Dorna knew that they'd get their hosting fee for the 10 years of the deal. Um, so, yeah, I, I think money is the uh, money is king here. And then shaking down from the bank, it's are you physically able to run a Grand Prix? Are you with the facilities? Uh, we can't have, unfortunately, a MotoGP race at Cadwell Park in the UK or at uh, Vallelunga outside Rome or somewhere like that. We, we, we have to have the right facilities that are safe, curbing, track and such like. And that takes visits by the FAM uh, facilities, enough space in the paddock. We touched on it last week about why the MotoGP paddock at Silverstone is at the old pits at Woodcut, not the new pits over at the wing and such like. Uh, Simon touched on the long-term deals. Uh, the season opener at Qatar, that's a big long deal. They pay extra money to Dorna for the circus to come to town because a lot of people watch the first race because it's it's the first day at school, isn't it? Uh, circuit or countries that we've never raced at. Um, crikey, where do we start? I don't, I'm not sure I know that many countries. Like, I, I could give a, a weird answer, like <laughs> Slovakia ring, <laughs> for instance, but that's just, that's just really out there because I think most, most yeah. circuits that I think all of us are well aware of are ones in countries where MotoGP has already raced. Like Vallelunga came to mind, obviously, as, as you, Toby, mentioned it, but obviously MotoGP has enough Italian races as it is. Uh, a return to Africa would be great, I think. Kailami. Yeah. Kailami is the, the answer, if, if we're talking about countries where we've already visited. Yeah. Last time we went to Brazil was three oh four, something like that off the top of my head. Um uh, we haven't been to Mexico. World Superbike went there and it was dogs on the track and stopping sessions and such like. Uh, but how far do you want to go back? And it kind of doesn't matter. But I think that the, the, the newest addition, which is positive for the championship, is Indonesia. It, 
It is, but this is the other point I was going to make here about um, whenever you were saying the, the secondary considerations, Toby, those secondary considerations are so like the gap between those and the primary consideration is huge as evidenced by the fact that we went to Indonesia to race this year in a track that wasn't safe to race on. Like if, if they, if there was actually a, you know, a consideration, a huge consideration given to those secondary things, we wouldn't sign deals for circuits that didn't exist. And as James said in his question, there are many of, you know, uh, Hungary is not the only one. There was another circuit in Brazil. There was a previous attempt at Hungary. There was the circuit of Wales. Uh, they signed a deal with the Lake Torrent circuit in Northern Ireland to take world superbikes there. Uh, there was a circuit in Kazakhstan that had a contract. There was a, a Russian circuit originally put on the calendar last year as a reserve that never, yeah, there, there's a... There's a long history there. But it's a win for Dorna. I know it's easy to be cynical about the Circuit of Wales kind of 10-year deal. It's very easy to be cynical about the Circuit of Wales. It is very easy. And I was never a believer from day one. Absolute day one. Um, But it's a win for Dorna because they get paid up front. If the race doesn't happen, the, the circuit loses their deposit. Exactly. It's a win for Dorna. Total win. It's a win for Dorna and it's a massive loss for the, the those fans that you know, get excited. The Circuit of Wales, let's be honest, was a massive loss for the people of a very deprived part of the UK who were promised jobs and infrastructure that we all knew was never really going to come off. But there you go. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Oh, well. Okay, so some business side of the sport. Thank you, James. Next up. Hello, gentlemen. My name is Kevin. I'm a Canadian expat living in France at the moment. And my question is regarding the KTMs. We were at turn one in Barcelona in early June. Um, we watched a lot of riders take that corner with large irregularities. However, my, my amateur eye uh, saw that those KTMs attack corner entry with confidence, and they rarely miss the apex. The KTMs, the Ducatis, Fabio, Aleix on the Aprilia, they always hit those corners spot on. Um, and it certainly seems like the KTMs enter the corners quite well. So what am I missing? Uh, are they suffering uh, with putting power down uh, on corner exit? Is it mid-corner speed? Um, do we actually know what is the this, this crippling technical limit on their 22 bike that hinders any progress uh, throughout the year so far? Anyways, guys, thank you so much for answering my question and uh, love listening to the podcast. Keep up the good work. Uh, Cheers. Interesting one, uh, Kevin. And um, I've probably sat in that grandstand as well, looking as they turn into that right-hander at the end of the home straight at Catalonia. So uh, very sharp of you to see that they're always hitting the apex, but not necessarily hitting the the upper echelons of Q2. Yeah, it's a... Like with KTM, I think the big issue still remains turning. It's still it's still a good bike under braking. I think it always has been. And I don't think that the turning issue you probably wouldn't necessarily clock at turn one at Barcelona from my from my understanding. Like that's not really the corner where they would really lose a lot by elongating the turn. But that's just that's just my guess. Obviously, you'd have to see the actual data to to have a really good idea what's gone wrong. Yeah, I, I think if you'd walked around uh, around the circuit a little bit to turn four, 
to that big long right hander, you might have uh, you might have noticed something a little bit different there because I think that's more. It's it's almost like the old KT or the old Ducati problem. Sorry, if it's the mid corner turning. It's it's once you're already in the corner, it's getting out of it again. That, that's presenting all the issues to them. And hell, we know how long it took Ducati to fix that because I think they that first that was a a, a Valentino Rossi complaint. Um, it was definitely something that Stoner highlighted whenever he returned briefly to test for them. And it's something that really only went away under Bagnaya and Miller combination. So it, it took a long time to figure out how to get rid of that issue for them. And also, like, KTM is it's close enough on the timing screens to where I don't think it would be readily apparent to the naked That's eye too. that something is quite wrong. Like, on race pace, they're just basically there. They're a good bike. Qualifying, okay, but I don't know. It's yeah, I think you'd have to see the data to, to really have a good idea. But it's braking is not their problem. So, yeah. Well, they've got to fight themselves out of a hole. And uh, I think they've got a few things up their sleeve for the winter. So let's see how things shake out for 2023. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Coming back with our listeners' questions, let's just go down under. Hi guys, how are you? Mark here from Sydney, obviously in Australia. Um, really appreciate the effort you go into producing the content that you do every week. I love the website, uh, therace.com. I'm there a couple of times a week checking it out and I'm desperate for each podcast to land so I can, can have a listen. Uh, my question for you today is based around um, riders' ability to swap bikes. So we know when we see riders move from one manufacturer to the other, how much information do they have in advance about how that bike rides? So, you know, is there something going on that we don't know? You know, is Jack able to go and test ride a, a, a Yamaha somewhere or is he allowed to go around to Alicia's garage and, and do a quick lap? I mean, if somebody is changing from one team to another, how much advanced information do they have about how their riding style is going to suit the bike? Because it seems to me like that's such a massive thing that can go wrong uh love to hear your take on that thank you very much <laughs> hi mark um thanks for the question and thanks for the kind words as well um honestly there is very well there's no testing first of all we know that for sure there, there is simply no testing it would be illegal it would be a breach of contract there's all sorts of reasons why it wouldn't happen um so 
what really they're left with comes down to three things. Um, firstly, the riders get to see the other bikes better than any of us ever do because they get to follow them. Um, they watch what their opponents can and can't do. Uh, a lot of these guys, let's not forget, a lot of these guys have known each other since they were kids. They know each other's riding styles almost as well as they know their own. In fact, some of them probably know their opponent's riding styles better because they get to see it firsthand rather than watch it back on a screen. Um, so th- th- they'll study and they'll observe and they'll see who's able to do what on the bikes. And that is one factor. Another is that, you know, MotoGP riders do hang out together. They, they do spend lots of time together in their social lives. Um, like For example, I think it's probably fair to say that Franco Morbidelli knows exactly what a Ducati does or doesn't do quite well and that Paco Bagnaia has a pretty good understanding of what Morbidelli's problems in the Yamaha are because they spend you know most of their free time together at Valentino Rossi's house hanging out and talking. And, and then thirdly, there will be a little bit of, you know, I'm not saying anyone's doing anything wrong here, but there will be a little bit of data transfer here and there. Um, there will be some factories who, if they're trying to lure someone in, will be prepared to give a rider access to the data from uh, from one of their own riders to maybe go and wait and look over with a, a trusted technician. Or there'll be, um, you know, there are riders who... Uh, say have worked with an engineer before who is now in a rival garage and they'll have a quiet word around the back of the bike sheds to understand what the bike does so with all that I think it's it's fairly easy for the guys to build a, a fairly complete picture to the extent at least that you're not going to jump in a machine and say oh this does the exact opposite of what I thought it was going to do unless you're Johan Zarko going to KTM <laughs> that was, yeah I was about to say <laughs> yeah uh, you know at the end of the day if a team wants a rider to come and ride for them they've got to uh, they've got to put their wares on show and it would be as you say Simon potentially here's the data but you can't take it away Here's the data on our computer screen in a hotel room that's 10 kilometers away from the track. Uh, when somebody in a red shirt goes into a blue truck, somebody will will pap them. Um, so there's a lot of uh, meetings done during the week and meetings done at hotel rooms tucked away and, and such like. So as regards to somebody even going in a garage, that's a no. That's an absolute no. They might just go into the hospitality, but they certainly will go into each other's motorhomes. You say that, Toby, but I popped uh, Miguel Oliveira going into the Grassini Ducati garage earlier this year, and I'm pretty sure he got to have a sit in the bike at least and see how it fit ergonomically at that point. They weren't very happy about that. And it still doesn't really help, clearly, what, what, what the teams are doing and what the riders are getting to find out because moving bikes in MotoGP is still absurdly absurdly difficult and so many of the moves end in complete failure and so many take a really long time to even approach respectability. When Valentino Rossi did his deal for Ducati, we were all filled with hope because it was going to be the Pope winning the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello on a scooter and we were all it was just going to be mega and he rode the Ducati at the Valencia end of year test at the end of 2010 and it might still be on the MotoGP.com website back in the archive because it was broadcast and he got off the bike it was a dampish day it wasn't a pure thrashing dry day 
but it was a bit damp and he got off the bike and he was at the back of the garage in kind of black uneasy leathers with yellow stripes on and the camera focused in on his face from the other side of pit lane and he was ashen faced and he later admitted i knew there and then this wasn't going to work but it was the only, the first and only time he could ride the ducati and he just signed a two-year deal so that element of risk is huge um Look what happened to Nicky Hayden when he jumped on an 800. But, of course, he stayed on an 800 Honda because he got paid loads of money because he won the championship the year before. Other factors do appear. There should, there should be one weekend a year where they all just swap bikes. They ride each other's bikes. Sounds great yeah. to me. Yeah. And there'll be points at the end of it. Even better. Well, I, you know, we, we've said from the before in the podcast that we wouldn't be opposed to a weekend or a session a weekend where a rookie gets a chance yeah. to try out a bike. Absolutely. And, and let's not forget that when when Johan Zarco signed his deal to go to Tech 3 Yamaha, he had actually tested a Suzuki MotoGP bike while he was still a Moto2 rider. So he had got a chance to try a bike and thought, mm, maybe not, and then went on to great things with the Yamaha. As a wait, 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 wait. In Zarco's case, wasn't it that Suzuki just preferred Rins rather than... Uh, I think thought that it was that he opted out okay yes. either way have to research they, they that. Put a rookie, either way they went and put a rookie in the bike which is yeah. pretty cool yeah mm. okay thank you mark uh now let's catch up stateside the dash race hey mike falcone calling again from pennsylvania in the united states um i have a question about the upcoming age limit increases in the coming years. Um, I was listening to an interview with Cameron Bobier. He had been asked about his desire to be in MotoGP, which he obviously has, but he said, you know, he he's getting up there in age at 29 years old, which I guess as far as racing goes, I understand, but I have frustrations about that, but that's not why I'm calling. Um, I'm wondering what you expect the rider market to look like when in the future 18 years old is going to be the minimum to race in moto 3 2 or moto gp so is is there going to be a shortage of riser, riders um i just feel like there's got to be some sort of unintended consequences i wanted to get your thoughts on it thanks for your time Hi, Mike. Uh, so it's obviously it's really, really hard to map out exactly how in each individual case the new age limits would work. But I think the hunch that the average age of MotoGP rookies would rise a bit is probably correct, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Like if there's any fear of MotoGP running out of a rider pool to take out of, I don't, I don't think that's ever going to be a problem. If you look at the, the current Moto3 and Moto2 grids, they're stacked with very young, very talented guys who deserve to hang around and get a chance at getting a chance without being shuffled out by younger and younger and younger riders. So if they're sort of an artificial cork in the bottle, I don't think that's necessarily so bad. I think the other thing, the other knock-on effects, and it seems like also not bad at all, is a lot of people are just going to bypass Moto3. And they're going to go straight into Moto Two, which a lot of them are kind of, sort of already doing. So you're just going to get, you're, you're going to have guys who do the Spanish Moto Three and Moto Two championships and really 
earn their keep there and come into Moto 2 straight away reasonably prepared. And if, if you want an example of that right now, like even right now, uh, last Moto 2 race at Silverstone, it was Augusto Fernandez versus Alonso Lopez, was it? Uh, both of those guys are from the from the SEP system. They're, neither of them is like a traditional Grand Prix paddock product, I wouldn't say. So it's it'll 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 sort itself out. There is an ecosystem there that I think will work. I don't know if this is an unintended consequence because I think maybe there is a bit of intention behind it, but maybe a secondary consideration is better to call it. Um, I think one thing it will have an effect on is the Spanish Italian dominance because it's going to give the kids who are already at the front of the American Talent Cup, the British Talent Cup, the Northern Talent Cup, those kids who start a little bit later and need a little bit more time to get up to speed, I think it's it's going to help close the door over the next few years for them. And uh, as a result, I think it's probably going to mean that in three or four years, we've got a, a Moto 2 grid in particular that's a little bit more diverse in terms of nationality. Um, but I, I think Dorner are probably quite aware of that and, and don't see it as a bad thing. Yeah, it's an interesting switch, and the pair of you bring up something that I never thought of, you know, that uh, almost a return to what they used to do in 250, where somebody could come from the Spanish cha- 250 championship and go straight in. They, they just skipped the lower class. And, and obviously, um, everything else aside, it's a change that is deeply, deeply needed for safety, um, for, you know, for various unnecessary to mention reasons. Okay, so thanks, Mike. Uh, We are now going to go West Coast. Hello, Toby, Valentin, and Simon. My name is Sean, and I'm from Orange County, California, in the United States of America. I'm a big fan of the podcast and of the website for a bunch of different reasons, including the insight that you're able to provide your readers and listeners. And it's just that insight that I'm hoping the three of you draw from now to answer two questions from me. My first question stems from something Toby said about how once Valentino Rossi allowed his mask to drop, and that comment got me thinking. Are there currently MotoGP riders who, when the cameras are not recording and the lights are off and maybe no one is looking, are just decent human beings to fans, to journalists, and maybe even to other riders? And my second question has to deal with Danilo Petrucci. Um, We were all thrilled when he came to race in the Moto America series. I think he's always been universally recognized as a decent human being, somebody who's respectful, who's funny, and who's humble. But since coming to the United States, he has lobbied some criticism against the Moto America series, the tracks, and the corner workers. And I found his comments to be a little out of character, and I'm curious if the three of you did as well. Thanks, guys. And shout out to the Ducati riders of Orange County. Hey Sean, uh, thanks for the thanks for the question and thanks for the kind words again. Um, I am obviously not going to say too much here because I don't want to dig myself into a hole with anyone that may be listening. But I will say that there are fan favorite MotoGP riders that I don't find particularly nice people to work with. Um, and I will say that there are people in the grid who are perhaps seen as not very popular people friendly people who i get on really really well with um i'm not going to name names because that would be unprofessional but yeah it, it exists it's a thing um you'd be surprised maybe who who the good guys are and who the bad guys are in the paddock in a friendly environment 
as opposed to who they may or may not be in TV. Um, Danilo Petrucci specifically is one of the nicest human beings I have ever met. I love working with Danilo. And, and I think that anyone who reads into his comments about Moto America as anything other than concern for his safety, the safety of his fellow riders, the safety of the people trackside is completely and utterly wrong. He's not doing that to be, um, to be controversial. He's not doing that to be aggressive. He's not doing that to make a name for himself in America. He's doing that because he worries about it. Um, I think we, because we, he cares. Because he cares. We, we. I think the three of us know Petrucci well enough from our dealings with him to be absolutely certain about that. And and strictly as a personal opinion that may not be shared by my two uh, colleagues, I think the way that Petrucci has went into Moto America and some of the um, <clears throat> aggression that he's faced from his fellow competitors, the fact that he's remained quite Petrucci-esque and humble and funny in the midst of it is quite telling to his character because they've not made life easy for him. Yeah, so the, the Petrucci one, I think the, a universal recognition among us that he's a, he's a really good bloke. Uh, and then just, I, I, I struggle to really delve into the Moto America thing because I just, like, I don't know enough about the scene and just don't have enough information. But I, I think it's easy, even if you take away what you know about Danilo Petrucci beforehand, I think it's really easy to sympathize with a guy who spent his entire career or at least spent a lot of, not his entire career, but a lot, a lot of years in various world championship paddocks in Europe. And what a, what a massive culture clash it is in certain, in certain regards to then come into a national championship in a completely different part of the world where they, you know, whether they do things right or wrong is irrelevant to this case, but they, they do certain things very differently. And this is, this is a very serious activity where obviously, safety is at the forefront of everybody's mind and if something feels off to you that's a that's a big thing obviously so i think it's really really easy to be sympathetic in that regard national spec superbikes are bloody quick no matter what tires you got electric whatever they're quick and some of those circuits in america are not what he is used to when we first went to laguna seca in 2005 colin edwards works yamaha rider uh he said about the left hander at the bottom of the hill before you make the climb up towards the corkscrew he just said oh it's quite simple you can't crash there you you you, you approach that corner going no 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 i'm not going to risk it on saturday afternoon you can't crash there that said everything to me but we went for the show and it worked and they eventually moved the wall back because we were a world championship and such like um petrucci top bloke um that picture of him i'll say it again that that image of him when he won Mugello in 19 when he slumped on the floor with all these mechanics behind him in park ferme i mean it brings a tear to your eye and the hairs on the back of your neck up um i dealt with him on the dakar you can't get away he's a friendly guy there's no filter of course which is why he's we love him because he's so open and emotional but some people might go oh you can't say that because there's no filter uh this is relating to the first part of the question but uh, simon in terms of good or bad and, and bad guys from your experience would you say the share and the relative percentages are similar to what you would expect in any other organization they're, they're what you'd expect in life yeah maybe, so, maybe with a little bit of ego say. sprinkled into the matter 
obviously because sports people. because it's sports but, and everyone everyone in MotoGP has an ego and I don't just mean riders there everyone in the championship has a big ego but and, and that does inevitably cause a few conflicts but yeah it's, it's no different from any other it's not any different from any office I've ever worked in yeah. it's just the way it is it's the way life is and it just it's because it, it steers into the realm of the philosophical if I may at that point it's how you approach life and how you approach your entertainment and whether you give people without knowing much about them the benefit of the doubt whether upon first interaction you just automatically assume that someone is an okay person not not perfect obviously everybody has their flaws but okay and then maybe give them the opportunity to prove you wrong or the other way around whether you approach them as somebody who's baseline rotten as us human beings can be maybe and then you give give them the opportunity to prove to prove you to prove you wrong in that regard and prove prove themselves worthy of your company that sounded a bit pompous but what i'm trying to say is from from my standpoint as somebody who consumes sports i would find it really hard to watch any of it if i didn't find it in myself to carry the baseline assumption that the guys doing this are decent and worth following and worth caring about their successes if 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 people on that grid were garbage then why should i care which one of them wins and loses life's not not long enough for that but thankfully i i don't think that's the case in motor gp i think they're they're okay and let's not forget that a lot of this as well is through the filter of 15 seconds on tv and what you see on social media obviously which isn't real life you know you're yeah, people who are quick to judge writers on what they know of writers without ever actually interacting with them are quite hasty, in my judgment. Also, language barriers. That's also a big one. That too, it's, it's that a too, really, yeah. really big one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. You know, the bottom line is, Sean, you know, Simon's right. You, you, you get this, you get your mind made up by what you see with the fluffy, shiny, diamond-encrusted world of television and Instagram. Um, and yet, they're completely different when you bump into them at the airport on a, on a Monday morning when they're sat on the suitcase in the queue for the coffee. Um, there was somebody from uh, another sport, nothing to do with motorsport, and I, I just thought, why do people go on about this bloke? They go on and on and on, and I just don't rate him. I don't rate him. He's just rubbish. And then, of course, I met him, and he was great. And you have to make your own opinion as well. You you know, we, we all know people, us three on this pod, people listening, we all know people and one person will say, he's an idiot. And the next person will say, oh, he's really nice. You know, it's just like a village. Simon alluded to it a moment ago. It's just like a village. You've got the good guys, you've got the old guys, you've got the young guys, you've got a bit of a bandit and you've got a village idiot and a village clown. <laughs> it's all in the mother GP paddock, isn't it? So uh, yeah, horses for courses. So uh, as all of us, they all have good and bad days. And if there's always a chance in life you catch somebody on a bad day and that's your impression of them. Your impression of them is that they're a piece of crap. And you can't really be faulted for that, but we we it's so hard to get a full scope of how somebody is, really. And it, yeah. And and they're at work. And it's pr- yes. high pressure, it's very money. High pressure. They've got only those 43 minutes on a Sunday afternoon to show their best. 
and the pressure piles up. There's a 50 million euro budget pressing down on their shoulders and such like. You know, Marco Melandri said, you know, I don't bring my friends to the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello. Why not, Marco? I wouldn't want, they wouldn't want to visit me if I was working in the biscuit factory. I'm here to work. And he was utterly cold-blooded about it. And I trot that line out regularly. So it's worked for a lot of people. So uh, good. Thank you for your questions. Uh, great to have some more coming in to podcasts at the dash race.com keep in touch with our website for all of your murder gp and formula one news austria this weekend then Mizano aragon the asian races mategi thailand philip island in australia sepang in malaysia before we finish up in valencia in spain to uh, well for us to discover who is going to be the 2022 motor gp world champion from val simon and myself toby we'll speak to you all after the red bull ring The Athletic.